Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. And I'm a co-host of the podcast, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Here at the beginning, I just want to thank some of the people that help us behind the scenes. Uh, first of all, there are all of you who give regularly to OnScript. Thank you so much for your donations that help us sustain and run uh, what we're doing here at OnScript. Also, I'd like to thank Ed Hackey for producing the show so faithfully. Ed's produced over 100 episodes for us. And we are so grateful to you, Ed, for all the time and consistency uh, that you've given to us. Uh, all thanks also to Rebecca Terhune for help with marketing and media, and also to James Steinbach for help with the website and web hosting. And finally, to Miriam Ward for her design work. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Ultimately, Kevin Grosso says, the third view interpretation of the Christ faith is not merely a contender in the debate. It is the most linguistically plausible meaning of the phrase in light of Pistis's range of meaning, the syntax of the Pistis Christu phrase, and early interpretations of the phrase by native speakers of Koine. I have Kevin Grosso here with me today. We're going to be speaking about Kevin's article, A Linguistic Analysis of Pistis Christu, The Case for the Third View, in Journal for the Study of the New Testament, Issue 43. This just is in 2020. Um, welcome to OnScript, Kevin. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Now, Kevin, I don't ordinarily interview around articles, uh, so this is a, a compliment to your work. Obviously, I think your article is especially important and that it holds potential to advance the field in a significant way. Let's jump into it. What is your central argument? Yeah, so the basic idea is that um, the objective genitive in the Pisces Christu debate is I claim to be disprovable based on, on linguistic grounds. It's just, it's not an option grammatically. Um, I think the subjective genitive is implausible. And um, the most likely interpretation grammatically is what would be called the third view, which is best translated as the Christ faith or the faith that centers around Christ the King. Uh, that's a bold argument, uh, especially the claim to have disproved the objective genitive. Um, and so uh, let's let's start maybe by just a, a quick refresher for those who aren't um, steeped in this literature and in this debate. Uh, what do we even mean by these terms? Um, what is the objective genitive? What is the subjective genitive? What might a third view be? Obviously, we're talking about the Pistis Christu debate um, more broadly, and you might even like lay the context for that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the Pistis Christu debate is is about you know, this phrase, Pistis Christu, in several passages in Paul, and and specifically how you take the genitive. Um, so, genitives, you know, it's been noted, can be t- interpreted in a number of different ways. And um, for most of the debate, um, at least recently, there have been two major camps, the subjective genitive camp and the objective genitive camp. So, the subjective genitive says, you know, the, this phrase, Pistis Christu, should be taken as um, like the faithfulness of Christ, usually to God's mission. 
And um, in this case, Christ is it's called subjective because Christ is the subject of, you know, what would be kind of a verbal idea. He's the subject of someone who is faithful to God's mission. And then the objective genitive is um, usually take, translated like faith in Christ. And it's our response to Christ. Um, and here Christ is, you know, it's called an object. It, I, I personally wouldn't call that um, an object. Um, but but that's, that's the idea is that this phrase should be taken as faith in Christ. Um, and then finally, I, I propose a third view. And really, this isn't my proposal. You know, so there, there have been other people that have, that have proposed this. Um, I mean, Preston Sprinkle is a, is a big one in this debate that, that has proposed this sort of third view reading. Um, and the argument basically is that it just involves a different sense of the word pistis, um, in which what I say is, you know, faith means a system of thought um, of which Christ is the content. And it's closest in meaning to something in English like the Christian faith or the Islamic faith, some sort of, um, yeah, like system that you can you can adopt. Gotcha. Um, and as you mentioned, there have been some other third view proponents, um, but nevertheless, um, uh, the, the, the maybe the best way to characterize the shape of the debate is that the objective genitive was traditional from the time before the Reformation through the Reformation where it had come to be understood. Uh, faith in Christ is what justifies us. Uh, the subjective view has been rising um, ever since the publication of Richard Hayes's monograph in the 1980s uh, uh, called The Faith of Jesus Christ. And um, in light of that, he argues for the subjective view. And then um, we have some more recent um, third view proposals, including um, the one by um, uh, Preston Sprinkle and Benjamin Schleser, um, uh, probably some others as well, too. Uh, but I'd have to think back through my literature. Uh, and then we have your, um, your new contribution that's arguing in favor of this third way. Um, let me let me introduce Kevin a little more to you. Um, Kevin Grosso is the founder of Biblingo, a software program to teach the biblical languages, and a PhD student at Hebrew University in the Hebrew Language Department, as well as an MA student in the Comparative Religion Department. He did his MA in Linguistics with a focus in Bible translation from Dallas International University. He studies theoretical linguistics, particularly syntax and semantics, as well as contemporaneous literature with the scriptures. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Rachel, and his son, Emmett. Uh, and in his spare time, he enjoys playing basketball, hiking, hanging out with friends, Bible study, and he even tries to play the violin. Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally. Um, and uh, we were doing a little pregame uh, discussion, and I guess uh, you, have a, you're, you have a quite young family, right? Yep, six months. Wow, that's an in, that's a that's an intense phase. Yeah, so we just got teeth and yeah, all well, of that entails. Be so. fruitful, multiply, keep adding to that family. Is uh, that's my advice uh, to you. Um, well, uh, Kevin, one of the things that makes your attempt unique is that you argue that modern linguistics can significantly advance the debate, whereas it would seem, at least my reading of the field, would be that many other researchers have sort of given up hope that, um, that we can solve this uh, in terms of any kind of um, linguistic arguments and that we have to fall back on context um, solely. Um, why the general despair in our field and uh, what accounts for your, um, your optimism? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So um, I think one of the biggest things is that the in this debate, it's been going back and forth for for quite some time. And a lot of the arguments have just been repeated, um, you know, more or less the same arguments, especially grammatical arguments. 
And I think in general, people haven't really dived into linguistics enough to see um, really what linguistic theory can say about these kinds of issues. You know, so I, this is, you know, something about the, uh, the field of biblical studies in general is that linguistics is, I think it's my view of it is that it's beginning to be taken more seriously as, you know, a helpful tool to, to um, exegete texts, but it's, it's still often treated as like, you know, a kind of a side gig, right? As something that, that, you know, we read a few books on linguistics and, and it helps us, you know, come to a better understanding of the text, but, but people in general haven't really dived into, into the literature and seen, you know, what, what it might have to say about some of the more complex issues. Yeah, I think that's a fair analysis, especially on the exegetical level, that um, that we might turn to linguistics for general like theory of word meaning and of of like how like sentences might contribute to like meaning projects, right? Um, but in terms of like diving into the exegetical details and using it to clarify on a, a nitty gritty exegetical level, I don't think as much work has been done in that direction. And I think from from my vantage point, one place I've seen people, and I'm, I myself probably have despaired, is over sort of the attempt to, to maybe use prepositional theology to try to clarify Paul, right? As you're reading and you're like, like, surely if we pay attention to all these prepositions, we can finally figure out exactly what's going on. Uh, and then you, you find that Paul's use of prepositions is not as systematic as you hoped it might be. And you end up sort of pulling out your hair, which is why I don't have any. Um, so uh, anyway, I thought um, actually your article was uh, a, a hopeful note for me because um, I think that you, um, you did some nice work on sort of nominals, noun systems, uh, and showed that um, like the how that connects to verb systems uh, and also to Paul's prepositional usages uh, and, cer and, and certain kinds of patterns, at least around the word pistis, um, that seemed like they had a level of consistency that I hadn't seen before. And I, I found that to be interesting. Well, your, your most distinctive claim in your article is probably that the objective uh, genitive is disallowed by grammar. So I want to kind of um, walk through that. Um, and uh, that would be that the traditional idea of pistis Christus is trust in Christ, right? That that's excluded. Now, you do actually leave room for a non-traditional understanding of the objective genitive. Um, and we can probably get into that a little bit more. Um, but first then, um, what are some of the main reasons? Let's do this kind of in two parts. First, what are the main reasons folks give in support of the objective genitive? And then I'm going to follow up with a question about deverbal nouns. Is that central to your argument? But let's start with that. What are some of the main reasons folks give for, um, for supporting the objective genitive? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. So um, if you actually look at the literature, um, and so this is what I did, you know, I, I went through all of the the reasons you give, um, or the literature gives for supporting the objective, the subjective approach, and then obviously the third view. And several of the arguments that are that are given for the objective genitive is are actually just arguments against the subjective genitive, um, which are not arguments for the objective genitive, especially if you have a third view, then, you know, it leaves open the possibility that that, that argument against the subjective could very well be right. It's just that, you know, it doesn't prove the objective side. Um, so you have arguments like that, um, like the lack of article is often used. Um, but, but honestly, the, the main, you know, sorts of arguments are, are based on context, right? And so this is, and I think this is part of the problem with the debate is that um, in, in a lot of ways, you, you can appeal to context on either side. 
right? And so, you know, the objective will say something like Abraham is a model of, of faith, right? And not faithfulness. And so, um, you know, this noun here in the Pistis Christu has to be faith and not faithfulness. And then it has to mean faith in Christ, right? And so there are obviously there are a number of issues with, with that kind of, kind of reasoning. Um, you know, what, what did, what was Abraham's faith exactly or faithfulness? Um, but, but I think just more broadly, um, it's just not, uh, the kinds of arguments that are given for the objective genitive position, um, are, yeah, are, are not based on solid linguistic evidence. Yeah. And obviously as part of that, it, it would seem that there are some constructions that lend themselves in a verbal form to a more objective idea. Right. And that's, that's been really important, um, evidence that some people have put forward, um, but yeah, you're right. Certainly the argument from context can go either way. Um, and uh, we have obviously like passages, even in, you know, if we're going to trot out the idea that Abraham is the uh, example of somebody who puts his faith in God, right? And there, therefore he's the paradigm of the objective model. Well, then we have passages right in the midst of that, like, you know, in Romans like 4.16, for instance, where it talks about um, Abraham's, you know, faithfulness, probably. I mean, as we have a genitive construction there, um, and it would seem like that's a subjective genitive, or at least in all likelihood, uh, one, as it's very difficult to, to make sense of it as an objective genitive in some way. So we have, um, yeah, an ongoing debate, okay, um, for sure. So um, let's let's try to like walk through your argument, at least that tries to deconstruct that um, and and see if we can tease it out a little bit further. So my the second part of that question then had to do with the verbal nouns. Um, when, when we when we kind of move into this topic of a de-verbal noun, then uh, first of all, we need to know what it is. Uh, and then um, why is pistis at least um, uh, a type of a de-verbal noun that makes this argument relevant? Yeah, so I think it's better to th- to um, start out with English and just explore how, and I, and I do this in the article, you know, to explore how our language works first, and then to use that understanding to come to a better understanding of of Greek or or language in general. I mean, I think every language has has these kinds of nouns. So the idea is that um, you know, a de-verbal noun is just a noun that's derived from from a verb. So it is what it sounds like. So an example in English and one that I use in the article is. Um, you have a sentence like the doctor examined the patients, right? Where examine is the verb, but then you can have the, that exact same phrase and you can turn examine into a noun with the, the suffix T-I-O-N, right? And that's the doctor's examination of the patients, right? And so, so their, their meaning is, is equivalent, right? The doctor examined the patients, the doctor is examining up examination of the patients. Um, yeah, we have, the same meaning. So, so in that sense, um, when we, when we look at like, when we claim that pistis is a de-verbal noun, what we would be arguing for would be that pistis is related in some way to an, the underlying verb pistewo, right? That's, that's the idea. And, um, yeah, we can talk a little bit more, I, I think later about, um, I mean, there's more to, you know, these de-verbal nouns. They're not always taken to mean, you know, uh, the same thing as the verbal counterpart, right? But in particular, when you look at the morphology, you actually find a lot of words like this with this, um, the is ending in 
in Greek, like brosis, for example, is food. It can refer to the object eaten or it can, food, or it can refer to eating, the actual event of eating. Um, you have, you know, several words like this, paradosis, apocalypsis, and like all, all kinds of words that, um, you know, have this ending and that, that are treated just like, um, you know, the, the T-I-O-N suffix in English. Gotcha. So, uh, so I guess a, a de-verbal noun then is a noun that um, has a corresponding verb and uh, ultimately takes what you call the same argument, right, as, um, as its counterpart. Um, and so whenever you divide these further, you get into that, right? And you have, um, uh, to further nuance this, you have what you call argument structural nominal readings and referential nominals uh, within kind of the de-verbal noun categories. Um, and so this is, ends up being very important to your argument as this is specifically what closes off the objective uh, genitive, at least as traditionally understood. Um, so what, what is the difference between those, between the argument structure nominal reading and the referential nominal? What, what are those? And, and then we'll maybe get into why that matters. Yeah, so, so first of all, these are, are readings. So they're not, um, it's not that pistis is either an argument structural nominal or a referential nominal. It's that um, they can have different readings. And again, think about it in English, right? The doctor's examination of the patient lasted five hours, right? We know that that's a, um, an argument structure nominal and it's related to the verb um, because the arguments are still there, just like the verb, the doctor examined the patients, right? And we, we, we know it's an event because we can say something like lasted five hours, right? And so, but we also have with something like examination, we can say, you know, Sue's examination arrived in the mail, right? In which case the examination is referring to an object. And usually this object is something that's a result or a product of, of the action named by the verb, um, but not always, but it's, but it's related to the, the verbal idea in some way. So, so that's, that's the basic difference between, you know, an, an argument structure nominal and a referential nominal. And the, the expectation for us when we come to pistis is that if it is, if it does have these readings, these argument structure readings, then most likely it will also have these, these referential readings as well. So it's important then to your overall argument that pistis only evidences this, um, this what we call argument structure nominal reading, um, uh, this kind of the idea of belief of Christ to be true, right? Um, that, that's, that's important for your argument. Um, so can you explain that result a little bit more and then maybe just a little bit of your evidence? Obviously, you, you have a lot more evidence in the article, um, but uh, that's your key result, right? Um, so explain what that result means, I guess, and, um, and then maybe just a, a little tiny bit of the evidence. Yeah, so the idea is that when you look at the verb, pistewo, you have um, the, the kinds of arguments it takes with um, accusative case and with a hoti clause, for example, um, are, are things that you would believe to be true, right? And also dative case as well sometimes. And there's reasons why we have this sort of alternation, which I, which I go into detail on, um, between the dative case and the accusative case. But the idea is just that an objective genitive, right, in, in this sense will, will mean what the, the verb means. And the verb means believe something to be true. And it doesn't mean, um, you know, believe 
in someone. So, you know, we, we actually have this exact same thing in English with our noun belief and, be, and our verb believe, right? And people say this all the time, right? Well, believing in someone isn't the same as believing someone, right? Um, so the, the, the point is that you just have a meaning difference when you, when you have, um, you know, the, the noun belief in someone versus belief of someone, right? So just, just like in English where the syntax reflects that difference, um, in Greek, the syntax also reflects this difference and you can see it in, in the kinds of, of words that um, go along with um, pistis, right? So I go into several, um, you know, particularly Harrisville III's um, article on, on how this is used in classical Greek and go into several... Um, you know, discussions on, on what kinds of nouns go with this, with pistis, right? When you have this meaning and they're always nouns of, of things with content. So grafe or things like that, a writing, right? So they're things that can be believed. They're not things that can be, or people that can be trusted in. Gotcha. So, yeah. So essentially um, any kind of objective uh, genitive uh, that we might find with relationship to the noun pistis uh, means uh, believe belief of John, namely like that John, um, belief of John, that uh, John is a, is, is a true person kind of, or something along those lines, but it wouldn't mean to trust in John. Right, exactly. So if you think, think about it, like if you put it into like a fuller English sentence, like Sue's belief of John that, you know, he, I think I, I think I said this in the article, he raised a pet bear, right? So Sue's belief of John, right, is, is specifically that this proposition related to him is true. It, it does not mean that he trust or that she trusts John. And so you didn't find any example of, of any constructions at all that had the traditional like trust in Christ idea, right? Um, right, exactly. So and this is this is the issue, right? That there, you know, th there have been claims that there these exist, but if you actually look at all the New Testament evidence, there's no unambiguous examples. And so when we are trying to decide what this, you know, disputed passage means, we have to first find unambiguous examples like, okay, this clearly means trust and we don't have any other option. Um, but if we, if we don't have those, then it's unlikely that, you know, the case could be made in this particular context. Yeah. Um, and I think that we probably both agree that zero examples isn't very many. <laughs> that's, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, that's pretty slender evidence for the objective view, and that's why I, I think you're you're making the case that um, your article has um, has uh, significantly undermined the objective view so much that it closes off that as a grammatical option. Um, at least the traditional objective view of meaning as traditionally understood, there's still room for a kind of objective view. It just is far different than the traditional view. Right. And and I think that's an important point is that I believe objective genitives exist. It's just that they don't mean the same thing as what people want it to. Okay. So um, let's jump over to the subjective view. And uh, and I'll be frank in saying I, I, I don't find that you've closed this off as definitively as the objective. Um, I'm, I'm still wrestling with your article, right? Um, but how about um, how about we, we, we go there then? Um, what sort of evidence is it that um, has uh, led you to move away from the subjective view in favor of the third view? Yeah. So again, if you, if you just look at the sorts of arguments given for the subjective, they're often arguments against the objective, right? Um, so, you know, people say the redundancy problem, um, you know, it creates a redundancy in, in some passages if you take it to be objective. 
Um, the human faith revealing God's righteousness. Again, that's an argument against the objective. Um, and then, you know, people before have said that the meaning can't be faith or trust in. Um, and I've, you know, tried to show that linguistically. Um, but I think, honestly, for me, the biggest evidence against the, the subjective uh, view is, is just that, I mean, it's really Harrisville, again, Harrisville, 1994. Um, this is where he goes through how the early church fathers um, took this phrase. And, and I look at this at length. And again, in Harrisville's, argue, in Harrisville's article, he says, oh, well, it's not um, subjective here. Therefore, it's objective. Right. Um, but I think he does show that these these early native speakers of Koine did not take it to be subjective. Right. And for me, you know, I, I think there I mean, of course, like we can't say that, you know, the exegesis of the early church fathers. And um, first of all, it's just not it's it's uh quite variable, right? They can't all be right. Um, but, but it is something significant when you have native speakers of Koine who, un, who don't understand it in this way. Um, I mean, we, I think, you know, we have to like factor that in as a significant, um, you know, data point because they, their Greek is just so, so much better than ours. And I, I think we, we fail to understand that a lot of times because we, we really don't um, think about native speaker intuitions that often, um, but you know, for us, when we when we speak, you know, in English in our native in native tongue, like we immediately understand most of the time, you know, ninety nine percent of the time, what the other person is saying, and and so I think that's that's kind of the biggest evidence against the subjective genitive in my in my view. Yeah. So re reception history is obviously um, a powerful argument amid some others that you make, um, but that does seem like the, the most decisive thing. Um, but certainly there is, uh, I mean, one of the things that is striking too, is there is a limited, a limited amount of data in the fathers, right? I mean, they don't, they don't talk about this phrase that often in such a way that we can get tons of critical control, um, which is unfortunate, uh, as that would help if we, if we did. Um, yeah, so um, in terms of your own your own third view, we've mentioned it a number of times. Um, can you unpack it a little bit more so that we, we have some more precision of what we're talking about here whenever we say, like, this is the third view you're advocating for, at least? Yeah, so this is something that I, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure how the article would be received, but this is something that I, I got a lot more pushback on than I, than I thought I would. Um, I mean, looking back, I, I can see why. But um, the, what I said in the article is that the noun pistis in, in this reading ha has an R nominal re or a referential nominal reading, right? So it's, it's not the argument structure. So it's not subjective or objective genitive, right? And it refers to what I called a system of thought. Um, and yeah, so this sort of system of thought um, is kind of the thing that I, I got some pushback on. Um, and I, and I, and I knew what, when I was writing this, that I, I didn't have the space to really argue for, um, really everything that needed to be argued for in this, in this phrase. Um, but the basic idea is that, you know, it, it really does mean something close to the Christ faith and how you would understand that in English. Right, um, a faith like a system of thought can be preached, right, and it can be adopted, and um, it can be you know life altering, right. And so, 
Um, that's the basic idea. So I, I don't want to say that it, um, you know, doesn't affect people's lives, right? But I do want to say that it is something that, um, you know, can be distilled in a message, right? It can be, um, yeah, something in, in many ways, it's, it's, it's close to um, gospel, right? Um, that something that can be adopted and that affects your life. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I think some of the pushback would be over some like sort of overly mental or cognitive understandings of pistis, right? That um, there's been a lot of work, recent work, especially pushing in that other direction. Uh, Nijay Gupta's work, my work, you know, Teresa Morgan's work, Peter Oak's work um, that have been pushing more in the direction of like externalized ideas of faith. And it's, it's, I think it's um, reading you with care. It's clear that you're not trying to exclude those. Um, as your idea of like of seeing this as a system of thought might suggest that it's mental, uh, but I do think it's clear that you intend something that could involve practices. Um, maybe your choice of the phrase "system of thought" uh, to summarize um, uh, uh, is yeah is is the point of tension, right? As that's what people are going to grab onto, right? And um, and uh, and front another thing that I guess is important to clarify, just for the sake of those who are listening and haven't read the article yet, or hopefully will read it um, soon, um, is that you're not doing a word study of pistis. So you're not really trying to argue that it can mean trust or loyalty or allegiance or, or trying to nuance what pistis itself means, right? It's, uh, you do leave quite a bit of latitude for that. Um, maybe you could speak to that quickly. Um, do you have a position on that or um, are, you, are you hoping to do more work in that direction? What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, some of this I, I won't give you all of my thoughts because they're not developed enough. Um, but, but I do think that one of the one of the big things, and and this is you know, if I were to write an article right now on what I think pistis means, um, one of the things that I would do would would be to, um, again, coming from linguistics, think about or present pistis as as a mental state. Um, down or verb, right? Or, you know, pisteo, right? It's the verb. Um, so one of the things that is important when you, when we talk about this, so, so, so even something like allegiance, right? Obviously is, is what, you know, your position is on, on, um, what this means, you know, you be allegiant to, um, or you give allegiance to the king, right? So, so in linguistics, what, what you would, what you would say is that this, that represents a mental state. It doesn't represent a physical action, right, or a state of an object, which are really the three kind of like big categories of, of verb meanings. Um, so it, it, it has to be, it's, it's not like allegiance, um, you know, you can't look at an act and say like, oh, that's allegiance. You can say, oh, that's an example, right? That's an example of allegiance playing itself out, right? But that act can look very, very different right, in, in different circumstances, um, that's very, very different than a physical action like run, right, where, where run, you, you look at it and you say, oh, okay, that person is, is running, right, and, and you don't have to know their intentions, you don't have to know anything about them other than how they are physically moving. So, so that's really, like, that's kind of where I'm coming from with this whole system of thought idea is, is that, you know, all of these all of these words, faithfulness, right, faith, like they all have, you know, at the end of the day, they, they don't point to a physical action in the world. Um, and, and that's not to say, 
right, of course, that these mental states don't affect physical actions. And I think that's, that's kind of the issue is that um, people have, you know, people have reacted against this, like, oh, it's just, just thinking, right? It's just thought, um, you know, it's just something cognitive. But, but I think if you understand cognitive in a way that, you know, it's, it's a mental state that affects everything you do in life, right? Um, it actually has much more potential to, you know, to affect your life, right? This sort of mental state than, than simply, you know, saying allegiance or loyalty or faithfulness is, is an action, right? It's not something we just do one time, right? It's a complete way of life um, that we would adopt. So, so that's, that's re really where I'm actually trying to, to connect it to, you know, down the line, that is, will be where I connect it to, is just to say that um, this system of thought, right, is something that um, can be adopted. And, um, you know, it's, it's the, the Christ faith is something that, you know, should fundamentally alter, you know, everything you do, right? But in order to alter everything you do, it's not just an action, it's, it's, it's a, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's some sort of mental state, right? That affects our relationships, that affects everything. Um, but it is, you know, it falls into that category linguistically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've kind of found helpful the work of Teresa Morgan and Peter Oakes that have sort of flipped that script and wanted to say that, like, that in antiquity, there just wasn't as much interest in terms of especially the pistis word group in mental states per se, but more in something embodied. Um, not to say that it excluded mental states, right, but that it focused more on an externalization uh, and that the mental states are secondary. They're presupposed, right? And uh, Morgan actually, as she goes through this vast survey of pistis, um, she argues that it actually doesn't really rep represent a mental state or very, very rarely. Um, obviously, the word pistuo does, right? We have pistuo hati, I believe that, uh, but the, the word pistis itself. So it's obviously some contested territory, right, as, um, as uh, there's a lot of interesting work being done on pistis. Um, and uh, yeah, so as we kind of um, begin to, um, uh, yeah, I have a couple wrap-up questions that I want for you, but I also want to just take the time to do some something fun that will help us uh, get to know you a little bit better. So you up for a speed round here? Sure. Okay, the speed round are just, you know, um, more questions that like you don't defend the answer, you just give us your answer and um, and we get to learn a little bit more about uh, about you. So um, how about this one? Um, are avocados the best food God created? <laughs> no. No? no. Uh, what, what is the best food God created? Uh, tacos. Tacos? Wow, that's a, that's a human hybrid. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that, uh, that, that we can say it's the best food God created. Um, tacos are awesome, though. So, uh, is there intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? And if so, are they bovines? Um, uh, yes and no. <laughs> yes, there is intelligent life. Uh, you don't think they're bovine in form? Probably not. Probably not. Um, so Star Wars, yes, no, or may? Uh, somewhere between yes and may. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, react to this word. How does it make you feel? Nuclear. Uh, scared? Scared. All right, you're, you're worried about nuclear disasters. You got Chernobyl um, uh, in your mind. 
Okay. Um, but what about what about good clean nuclear energy? I mean, how come that didn't come to mind? I I, I don't know. I <laughs> I've been asking <laughs> right. you so quickly. I, I don't really know why. It's I know. To I told you you're not supposed to defend your view, and then that, now here I am, like making you defend it. Yeah. Um. Uh, what's a good non-theology or not or or book not related to biblical studies that you've read recently? Not related to biblical studies. Yeah, so you could do linguistics if you want to smuggle some academic stuff in. I don't know. Oh, Whatever you want, though. I, it could be a novel, anything. Um, I've recently been reading some George MacDonald fiction. Oh, so it's Donald. just great literature. Gotcha. Um, all right, and, and sticking along that theme, what's the most important book in theology or biblical studies of the last 50 years? So I knew you were going to ask me this. Um, I, I, uh, I think for the field... You know, I, I would have to say Paul and Palestinian Judaism for sure. for me personally. Um, uh, N.T. Wright's um, New Testament and the people of God probably the yeah. most important. Yeah. Well, it's hard to fault you on either of those choices. Uh, if you'd even reversed it, uh, it'd be hard to fault um, either of those choices, right? Um, all right, let's let's jump back into um, your article here, and I had a couple. Um, a couple of questions that I wanted to kind of um, end with that are, um, you know, um, hopefully not like too challenging, um, but maybe are aimed more in that direction of like, how would you respond to this in light of your argument kinds of questions? Um, it, first one is there are obviously numerous examples of Pistis Christu in Paul's letters, um, and some of them involve a rewriting of Habakkuk 2.4. Um, does your model sufficiently take into account that, um, or how how do you integrate that, or is it just beyond your project um, in terms of like like controlling in some way how Pistis Christu um, must be understood? Yeah, so I think that so obviously there have been you know a number of people that have that have given you know reasons why a back to four really should be controlling you know the Pistis Christu phrase. Um, you know Doug Campbell, obviously a big one. Um, I, when I was thinking about this and looking into it, I came to the current conclusion, uh, that I, I, I just don't think that it is, um, it's not a necessary argument, right? So if, if you take Habakkuk 2.4, um, and the way Paul uses it, even if he's referring to, um, the faith of the Christ, um, or the faithfulness of the Christ, like it's not necessary that in our Pistis Christu passages, you you then have you know this this reading. Um, so I think in particular, um, you know you can be you can be right about the story and you can have a coherent argument for what Paul is saying. And I think that you know something like Doug Campbell's work, right, like is coherent. I just don't think that's what Paul is saying. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, for the phrase, um, the, 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 you know, from the Habakkuk, the ekpistios phrase, right, that would be part of, like, you know, um, thinking through the, the whole of this, right? Paul obviously precedes that in Romans one seventeen with his ekpistios ace piston. And, you know, the argument would be that that could be split into parts, right? That the ekpistios, you know, would be, you know, like by faithfulness, right, of Christ. And then the ace piston for faithfulness. Certainly the ek uh, and the ace seem like they might, um, like, 
be separable pieces, right? And that's why I think there's pressure to move beyond like the raw linguistic argument of like what the pistis Christi might mean, and it's like take into account both parts of the ec pistos, ace piston. For me, in my own work, that's what's pressured me, especially in the direction of the subjective reading, would be to see the ace part seems like it has some important um, implications, right? Where Paul says it's for all those who believe, right? In and Romans three twenty two, and so on. So um, you know, obviously, like yours is a pretty heavy linguistic study. I mean, that's where I think you're going to get some pressure back, probably from myself and from others in the academy. Is like, like, does it take seriously? Does it take seriously enough Paul's own internal arguments and seriously enough patron-client relations, right? That would suggest that it could be like, you know, by the king and then like for the sake of all those who are responding to the king, you know, kinds of arguments. Um, so, yeah, I want to um, sort of push back on that um, at least a little bit. Um, a second um, kind of point of pushback is um, kind of from a linguistics angle, and it's a similar kind of thing. I noticed that you didn't engage Donaldson Lapinga. That's, that's not an accusation. We can only do so much, right, in our book. I don't know if you're aware of Donaldson Lapinga's book, you know, The Faithfulness of the Risen Christ, uh, but they do argue from a relevance theoretical framework um, from linguistics, arguing in favor of the faithfulness of the risen Christ and argue um, like that Paul is building a, vo- a pistis vocabulary, right? from his first usages onward in his letters, right? Like in each letter, we can see him building on his pistis vocabulary in such a way that would suggest that it's faithfulness rather than faith. Um, Any kind of just immediate reaction to um, that kind of an argument, even if you haven't done business with their full monograph? And again, we can all only read so much. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't. So that would be the main reason why I didn't quote it. Um, But the... I mean, my my knee-jerk reaction would be that I don't think um, relevance theory is as relevant as they would think. Um, so, you know, relevance theory is, is um, you know, a theory of pragmatics that is, is important. But pragmatics in particular, you know, at the end of the day, like, it has to... Um, at some level be subservient to to semantics so and when i say that i just mean that like we we calculate pragmatic meaning um just in a different way right like like um you know there are all kinds of examples about you know implicatures is is um, I, I don't know exactly what terms I can and can't use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Paul, Paul Grice's theory of implicature. Like an example, just to help the audience, would be like um, if you're going to a swimming pool and it says, you know, um, shower first, right? And you're like, you you know, automatically, like by the situation, right, that it's implied that it's talking about showering your own body before you get into the pool. Like you're not like, oh, well, maybe I should shower down in the locker room in here. Like you know, it's about showering yourself, right? Because of certain kinds of implied meanings that are part of like the contextual event that you're. you're... Is that a fair enough summary of? Yeah, exactly. And so, and so, I would just say that, like, you know, um, I I think at, at the end of the day, like when when you talk about what the meaning of a genitive is, um, like a ton of work has just been done on, you know, genitives normally mean. Um, their meaning is dependent on the meaning of of the noun, right? So, like, you you have to look at the the semantic value of pistis in the phrase and how it's used in that in that context. And and of course, you know, relevance theory like can help you determine the the context. But I, I yeah, without without 
without having like looked at the work myself, um, I would just say I, you, I would be surprised if um, some of the arguments like for context weren't just repeated in the relevance theory garb. Um, and, and maybe that's like totally unfair. I, I really don't know. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, honestly, that's, that's something that I, I, I would want to, to look into. Um, I do, I still think that, um, yeah, when you're, when you're doing this kind of work, you have to look at syntax and semantics first. Sure. Yeah, and, and certainly they don't ignore such things, but I think they they do show probably, they, I would say maybe um, one of the things they certainly do would be strengthen Hayes' narratival claims or Campbell's narratival claims um, su significantly by showing that it's a lot broader than we would think, that it involves not just Jesus' faithfulness in his death, but faithfulness as the resurrected Christ who is uh, who is um, at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. So you'll have to check it out and see what you think about um, the further arguments they've they've offered there um, in their excellent um, book um, all right but but actually your your um, your your kind of comments there actually leading to my, my my final point and that that would be concerns like over um, is at the end of the day the third way more than simply a claim like genitives are qualitative qualitative or genitives are descriptive right uh, it's a it's kind of a floppy umbrella right when you just say well it's a relational term right like we're talking about the the Christ faith or the faith of the Christ right um, like if we reduce it to like the Christ faith as like sort of an adjectival descriptor, like you've, it seems like you've opened up so much room that it's such a floppy sombrero. Uh, obviously, you can you can kind of bring in anything to it, and, and you're actually congenial to that, as best I read you. Like you're congenial to saying, well, it's not technically a subjective genitive, right? Technically, it's it's a third way. It's a it's what we might call this R, you know, this this R nominal reading, right? Um, but you're at the same time wanting to say that um, it it never nevertheless could be faithful to the, the idea that uh, this is about the faithfulness of Christ, right? Um, how do you respond to that, like, I guess, concern that this is such a floppy category that it, it, it doesn't really do anything beyond, say, genitives or genitives? Yeah. So I would say it's, um, if I presented it as floppy, that would probably be a, a uh, an error on my part more than well, anything. that's just maybe my own construal. <laughs> no, yeah. no. I mean, I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, so I, I, I think here, here's the thing, right, is that if if we say that, um, you know, again, that this, this um, the meaning can mean something like, um, you know, it's something similar to a message, right? It can be preached, it can, it can come and enter the world, right, as a new system of thought that people can adopt, right? And, and obviously the content, like the content is not, you know, argued about, right? It's, it's the, the Christ, you know, the king. Right. And so in this in this sense, right, like um, it is, of course, the story. Right. And so and so when I read Campbell and Hayes and, and write in these guys and talking about this big narrative sweep, I would say like, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Right. And that's that's but that doesn't mean that this phrase right necessarily means faithfulness of Christ. Right. And, I, and so I think like, um, I, I mean, you know, personally, I, I think that this whole debate um has been overblown in, in some respects and like how important it is. You know, people have said, you know, this is like kind of the linchpin on how you understand everything in Paul, right? And, and I don't think that's really the case. Um, so, so I do think that like I, you know, I would leave open, you know, the, this sort of, um, uh, you know, adopting this big overarching narrative. I mean, I, I would affirm it. Right. Um, and I would say, you know, the, the revelation 
of, of God's righteousness has come through the Christ faith, right? This has been preached and taught. It is, um, you know, this, this faith that, um, you know, the, the king has, has come to Israel at last, right? Um, and then that obviously, you know, demands of people um, faithfulness and, and loyalty to, to him as king. So, and, and of course, right, the content of that is going to be to focus on Christ, the, the, the king's faithfulness to the mission of, of Israel, right, where um, Israel was not faithful, and so, and so I think, um, yeah, what the, 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 the pushback to the pushback I would give would just be that you, um, you have to distinguish between, you know, what, what Paul is, is saying, right? Like, like what, what is, you know, syntactically and semantically most likely the interpretation of the genitive and then, and then what's coherent. So I think that, that these guys' narrative is very coherent. Um, and I think it, it actually fits with my view. Um, but I, but I don't think that that's what, what Paul is saying. So at the end of the day, you might be right in the sense that like, um, uh, you know, like if we adopt this objective genitive versus the third view, like there's not that much difference, right? Theologically. Um, you know, but, but I do think that I, I do think there is a difference and I, you know, at least somewhat. And, and I do think it, it's a better understanding of, of what Paul is saying. Yeah. And I, I think that's a nice, um, yeah, that's a, that's a nice sort of final thought from you that like uh, at the end of the day, like pastorally, as somebody is preaching from the pulpit, right, um, that that really this is about like um, the king coming, about like our response of loyalty, of fidelity, of trust, of all those things, right, to this king who has brought God's um, grand story to a climax in his death, resurrection, ascension. Um, and I think that's a that's a good encouraging word. Um, well, I, I really enjoyed this, Kevin. I think this is um, this is one of the articles, frankly, that has stirred me up more than anything else I've read this last year. That really got you know my academic juices flowing. Um, I, again, the title for you all: um, this is Kevin Grosso's um, article, "A Linguistic Analysis of Pistis Christu: uh, The Case for the Third View," um, published just recently in the Journal for the Study of the New Testament, Volume Forty Three. Uh, and so you can hunt it down. Um, we'll probably we'll have a link on our website. I don't know if we can link directly to his article or not, but if we can, we will. And, uh, and we'll get that uh, uh, conversation stirring, hopefully, for you. Um, thanks so much, Kevin, for being our guest. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And for OnScript listeners, uh, again, uh, you can access all of this at our website, www.onscript.study. Until next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.